Okay, just just before you sit down. Chuck's got it down. We're learning. All right, if you could grab your Bibles and open them up and stand up with me. Nehemiah chapter 9. You're going to see again why we're standing up. And while you're getting your Bibles open, because I want you to be able to read and follow along with me, I want to say thank you to Bob Briggs back there. Taught you how to eat an elephant, I think, last week. Some of your blank... Okay, thank you. Bob, I just want you to know the retention span of a typical congregation, maybe two and a half minutes. But ours in advance, they made it three or four minutes, okay? So I'm sure you're... What's that, Peter? Yeah, they're, hunt. Yeah, hunt an elephant. Maybe I should listen to this sermon, right? <laughs> Guilty. Been a busy week. I will listen to it. Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to pick it up halfway through verse 5. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. And made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. You may be seated. Now we're going to dig into that. We're going to dig into this prayer. And we're going to look at it in four directions. So we're going to try to follow it as we go through the prayer. Here's my goal. My goal is that all of us would find ourselves going deeper with God in prayer. Now, how many of you, let's just be, let's just sort of galvanize our souls this morning in the same direction. Let's grab hold of them. You can grab hold of your soul. Wake up, soul, is the psalmist cry. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Sing a new song, O my soul. So we can, we can impact our soul. We can direct our soul. So let's do that this morning. Our soul, our mind, our heart, our inner person, how many would say that they long for a deeper, more intimate, more satisfying prayer life? How many of you would say that? Okay. That's the aim of this part of Nehemiah, that we could take this corporate prayer and extract the principles to be able to develop a deeper Private prayer life, corporately as well, but privately in addition. You know, J.I. Packer, in his classic book, I'm not sure if this is from that book, but J.I. Packer said this, the mark of great prayers, his classic book is Knowing God, the mark of great prayers in the Bible or elsewhere is that they express a great awareness of a great God. You see, what he's saying is if you... If you have a prayer life that is weak or anemic, fast food prayer life, he says, he's saying the problem is there's not the greatness of God that is riveting your soul. 
If you want to go higher in exaltation of God, you want to go deeper, it's a teeter-totter. You go deeper in humility, deeper with God, you're going to go higher in exaltation. If you want to experience that, then you need to know how great our God is. So two weeks ago, we looked at five principles that prepare our hearts to pray. If you remember them, they went like this. First, we have to have a heart of humility. But the Bible says you can humble your heart. We can humble our heart. You sit underneath the cross during communion. That caricature of one that's above my head, which is a tame version of the bloody, scarred, picked and pocketed cross that Christ died on. You sit underneath that and your heart begins to diminish in its pride and exalt in God's love. You begin to preach Christ on the cross. You preach the gospel to yourself. You sit on the edge of the ocean. And it's really very difficult to think greatly of yourself. And you're lost in the wonder of the breadth of that water. Or you stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon and you think how wonderful you are and how exalted you are. It's nearly impossible. See, you can humble your heart. And the Bible says if you're going to pray, if you're going to learn to be a praying saint and a praying congregation, then we've got to have hearts of humility. Hearts that then learn to confess sin. When God brings awareness of sin, we cast it on Him. That's what it means. You acknowledge it, you agree with God, and you throw it onto His mercy. That's the twin view, doctrinally, of confession. And out of hearts of humility come hearts of confession and a heart that's filled, thirdly, with the Word of God. If you want to have a heart that's humble, a heart that is confessing sin, then fill your heart with the Word of God. It's power. It's living and active power. Scours our hearts. Scours our minds. Breaks free some of that rust. Breaks free some of that debris that doesn't please God. And floats it to the surface so that we can throw it upon Him. So humble your hearts and confess sin and fill your mind with the word of God and have a yearning, have a jealousy for God's full attention. Ladies, don't you, when you're on a date with your husbands or your boyfriends, don't you want their full attention upon you? Do you want to sit across from them while they're glued to a TGI Friday screen watching a football game or a basketball game? Does it feel very intimate? Does it feel very romantic? Listen, we can yearn, we can call for God's full attention. We can say like Nehemiah, pay attention to my cry. It can be like the psalmist, invite God to look upon our hurting hearts. And then fifthly, a heart that's prepared to pray is a heart that then turns vertical. This is about God, not about me. This is about God's attributes. This is about acknowledging the power, the actions, the character of God and blessing Him. And that's what blessing means. It means to acknowledge what is beautiful about God and return it to Him. Speak it to Him. And so we're studying Nehemiah chapter 9. Let's, let's, let's just get this right out in the open. This is a corporate congregation prayer. Now you ready? All five ways to prepare your heart are the same five that are in Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah's personal prayer. 
See, if you want to learn to pray as a congregation, you learn to pray as a child of God. And that's what we're learning. We're learning how do we become a person, a man or a woman of God, a child of God that goes down deep into the essence, into the intimacy of the person of God and bring up blessing, bring up acknowledgement of his incredible wonders. So today what we're going to do is we're going to start, and this is going to take, we're going to continue this next week and then after Easter, we're going to take a break for Easter. We're going to learn what four-dimensional praying is. We're going to look at the first dimension this morning, and then we're going to bring out some of what we're going to see. We'll pick it up and finish the first dimension next week. Here it is, principle number one, the first dimension of 4D praying that we're going to see in Nehemiah 9. you got to look up. you got to look up. You've got to look up. The first dimension of a praying congregation, the first dimension of a praying saint is upward. And look at verse 5 with me. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You see, their hearts did not begin praying like ours often do, mired in our own circumstances. In fact, look at verse 6 with me if you would. I want you to see the pronoun repeated over and over. You are the Lord. You alone. You made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth, and all that is on it, the seas, and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. In fact, if you go chapter 9, verse by verse, you know how many times the word you occurs? 57. You see, it's an upward look. The first dimension of a praying saint is that we're looking vertical, that we're looking upward. And it begs us to have the discipline to ask ourselves this question. You ready? Maybe you should write it down. How often does the word I take place in your praying? (laughs) Nothing wrong with praying with the word I and me. But if it's the overwhelming direction, you may be out of sorts with the scripture. The scripture over and over, Old Testament and New, vertically looks up to God. Vertically puts God at the center. You see, when we pray I and me and it dominates our prayer, we make ourselves the center. That God exists to move on our behalf rather than God exists to move us on his behalf. So let's just begin there by looking up. Before you even begin to pray, whether that's tonight, this afternoon, tomorrow morning, how often are you looking up to God and experiencing the transformational power that occurs when you center on the being, the person, and the wonder of God? We got right at the beginning of this passage. Their hearts look up to God. Look what it says. His glorious name, which is exalted above all. Now that might sound a little odd. Because let me just ask. I'll put a little test to you. Ready? When's the last time you used the word exalt in a conversation? It's not in the normative language of modern Americans. What's it mean to exalt God's glorious name? 
What's it mean that his glorious name is exalted above all? You see, in the Bible, and this is really interesting, because this is so different from our culture. In the Bible, the name of a person was like an icon that you double-click and expand their character and their traits and their attributes and their personality. The name of God captures the attribute of God that the name means. When his name was put on the temple, his name was put on the tabernacle. My name shall dwell there, he says. That means that with his name comes all of his presence. Comes all of his power, comes all of his grace, all of his mercy. When you lift up the name of God, you're lifting up the person of God. If you slander someone's name, you're not slandering the name Tim Ackley, you're slandering the character of Tim Ackley. When you praise somebody's name, you're not praising, wow, their parents gave them a great name. You're praising their character. You're praising an attribute about them. So the saying that goes like this, she made a name for herself, doesn't mean she went to the social security office and got a new name. It means that the way that she's lived has either elevated her reputation or demeaned and diminished her reputation. Friends, it's why the fourth commandment is so important, which goes like this. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That means in vain means to empty or reduce it to the common or the secular. God's name should not flow from your lips like my name would flow from your lips or like someone else in your life's name would flow from your lips. His name is sacred. His name is special. It's in a category all by itself. Listen, this, and it's always I'm very patient about this because I think we've just got to learn this. It's so anti-typical to our, our, our culture. Listen, the, the phrase, oh my God, should never come from the lips of a Christian. Unless it's used in praise and worship. Well, that's legalistic. No, that's taking the name of God and reducing it to the secular, the common, which is what secular means. We elevate the name of God. You don't bring it down flippantly. And Christian, listen, if you're a Christian, that means you're a little Christ. The name of Christ is on you. The way you increase God's reputation is when we carry Christ into our world in such a way as it reveals his attributes, reveals his love and his faithfulness and his character. When we demean his character by living in such a way as it slanders the name of Jesus, which is on us, we're bringing his name down in vain. His name is to be exalted. Look what the text says. Above all blessing and praise. You know what that word praise means? I'm going to define it and show you how we use it today. And maybe we don't even realize we do this. The word praise, it comes from a Latin word. It means to value, to, to to determine the worth or the price of something. Here it is. Ready? Look at the word behind me. Appraisal. You ever had an appraisal done in your home? The root word is praise. 
It means you're getting a value set on your home, the the price or what it's worth. The greater the value, the greater the worth, the greater the price, the greater the praise. When we exalt God's name above all blessing and praise, it means this. It means you put more value in God, more worth in God, a bigger price tag on God than anything or anyone in your life. And that means to exalt it. To bless God's name is to acknowledge and praise God for his great acts and his eternal character. And this is exactly what we see those Levites at the beginning of chapter 9 who are standing on the stairs of this platform. It's exactly what they do is they begin to lead the people of God in prayer. They begin to exalt God's acts in his character. I'm going to bring three of them this morning. What they bring out, we'll, we'll pick up the rest, Lord willing, next week. Here's the first one. They begin to exalt God, who is the faithful one. When's the last time you've exalted God's faithfulness? You know what we're going to do in communion today? Instead of me talking, or Pastor Tim, or Pastor Matthew, I'm going to introduce it briefly. And while the men are passing out these elements... You're going to have the opportunity to share your praises of God and exalt an attribute and act a character of God that you've seen in your life, that he has demonstrated in your life over the last several weeks or months. We're going to exalt his name, his glorious name above all, above all or anyone or anything. See, God is a faithful one. The depth of our prayer lives. That's the aim of this mini-series within Nehemiah. How do you go deep in God? Listen, the depth of our prayer lives, it's directly connected. Here's your teeter-totter. If you want to go deep in intimacy with God, here it is. It's a secret. Not many people are getting it. You want to go deep with God in prayer, you go high with God in exaltation. That's how it works. If you exalt God little, you'll pray little. If you exalt God much, you'll go deep with Him. If you go deep with God in humility, you will lift Him up. In other words, the more you know God, the more highly you're going to exalt Him. And look what the Levites tell us in verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. Let me teach you something this morning. I think this is going to help you in your Bible studying. Whenever you see... In the Old Testament, the word Lord that is in all capital letters. Not capital L and then lowercase O-R-D. All caps. When you see that in your Old Testament, it is showing you specifically that's the name Jehovah. It's spelled with a J, pronounced with a Y. It's Jehovah. This is the sacred the name of God that is the name above names in the Old Testament. This is the name that the Jews would not speak. They would not write it. If you see a modern Jew go G underscore D, this is the name, Jehovah. It's the name where they pulled the vowels out and inserted vowels from Adonai in it and made Yahweh. They won't write Jehovah, they'll write Yahweh. And they won't speak Jehovah, they'll speak Adonai. Why? Because it's their effort 
to take this all capital name of God, Lord in our language, Yehovah in, in Hebrew, and preserve it in its inviolate state, rather inviolate state, holy and sacred. Now, I'm not saying we should do that. I'm just giving you background on this name. What's the name mean? It's the personal name of God. It is God's name that he gave to his people. It's God's name only for his people. It's the password for the people into the riches of their faithful God. You know this name, you've got a relationship with this God. And you've got all of his blessings and all of his covenantal faithfulness that is going to flow to your life. It's the personal name of God. And you get to see the root of it in Exodus 3, where it goes, If I come to the people of Israel, Moses is saying, and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Here's God's answer. I am who I am. See, I am is the root of Jehovah. It's I am. It's not it is. It's the personal name of God. He's not some nebulous glowing sphere of energy. He has a personality. He speaks. He communicates. He feels. He wills. He loves. He hates. It's I am, not I came to be, because Jehovah means the self-existent, eternal God that has no beginning, no end, and he never changes. I am speaks to the immutability of God. He never, ever changes. Never has, never will. You know what that means? He's the promise-making God who is the promise-keeping God. Jehovah is the promise-making God who is the promise-keeping God. And though I don't have a lot of time to expand on this, but I want to show you something that I think is absolutely astounding. The person who of God, the person of the triune God, who is speaking from that burning bush to Moses, declaring his name is Jehovah, the person is Jesus Christ. He's the one in the burning bush. Did you know that? Jesus appears all through the Old Testament. The Father appears all through the New Testament. The Holy Spirit appears all through both Testaments. The triune God who's speaking, the person who's speaking from the burning bush is Jesus Christ. Well, how do you know that? Well, John 8 says this. Jesus is speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That was a marker for the Jews back to the burning bush. The name of God, Jehovah, is Jesus Christ. Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is the personal promise-keeping God, whose name is above every name, Paul wrote, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Get ready, here's a word. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? All the way back to Lord. Did you know that it was Jesus in the bush? Did you know that it was Jesus saying, I am, I am the immutable, never changing, self-existent, personal God. If you're going to exalt God's glorious name, you'll never find a name more glorious than Jesus. So how do we praise the name of Jesus? Let me give you some practical suggestions, and they're all included in the name of Praise as an acronym. Here's the P. Position. Now somebody's going to accuse me of legalism. 
But I think part of the problem with our anemic prayer lives is that we've forgotten that all through the Bible, there's a physical response to the presence of God. Listen, I can guarantee you, if God manifested His presence this morning in front of us, we are all going to drop to our faces, whether you love God or not. Your body cannot resist the weight of the majesty of God. It will always drop you lower. And if we're going to learn to praise God, remember the teeter-totter, you, you, you go down deep with God, you go high in exaltation. If you're going to learn to praise God, you got to get low. If you could get on your knees, get on your knees. If you could get on your face, get on your face. At least bow your head deeply. Not because of what Linus told Lucy in a Peanuts comic, who Lucy walks in on Linus as he's learning to pray, and Linus says to Lucy, I think I've made a new discovery. Well, what is it, she asked. Well, if you hold your hands upside down, you get the opposite of what you pray for. There's nothing, that that really fell flat, didn't it? Let's just admit it. I'm working on my jokes. There's nothing magical about your posture. That's going to bring more grace. But listen, your posture will be followed by your heart. If you don't want to wear sackcloth, which I'm with you, and if fasting may not be the regular rhythm of your life, and if you've never really seen the value of throwing dirt on your heads, all three what they've done in the early part of chapter 9, then the way we do it, the way we humble our hearts is to get low. God, you are the Lord. You are the majestic one. I exist before your throne to serve you. You get low. And then you reflect, that's the R, you reflect on Jesus, what Jesus has done for you, what he continues to do. Listen, if his mercies are new every single day, like Lamentation says it is, then that means we've got the, the material to write a new song every day, like the psalmist says. You can write a new song because God's constantly doing new things. And then A, you begin to check your attitude. You trade in the I's and the me's for you's and yours. This morning I got up and I sat down on the couch and I began to pray. Because I'm preaching this and this has been in my mind all week, I began to automatically pick up the I's and the me's. It is so natural. Right out of the gate. I did my obligatory, God, thank you, you are so awesome. Okay, Lord, now here's what I need. This is what we do. It's our default praying position. It is a discipline to begin to look up and say, God, you are the important one. I'm aligning to you, not you aligning to me. So you eradicate, you check your attitude, and you get rid of or diminish the I's and the me's and give the you's and the yours. And then you investigate the scriptures. Listen, if you never walk through the word of God to study the prayers of the saints of God, it will change your life. It will change your life. Look how the saints, the men and the women of the Word of God prayed. There was a depth there that we rarely experience. And you will find over and over, they kept looking up. They kept looking up. They kept looking up. Now this is the one that people aren't going to like. 
you have a secret place? Do you have a place with no distractions where you can regularly meet with God? You know, Murray McShane, who did a, an incredible work in God's kingdom and died at a very young age, he wrote, What a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is and no more. You will never be more intimate, more vulnerable, more you than when you're on your knees or on your face or low before your God. That's who you are in its essence. Do you have a secret place? Friends, we could pray on a bus We could pray behind the wheel in our commute. But that is not free of distractions. You've got stimuli coming in left and right and constantly. You want to go deep with God in prayer? I can tell you it will not be behind the wheel of your car. It will not be in the break that you have between classes as a teacher. It will be in your secret place that you go to, make it a regular habit. Jesus infers this when he taught us how to pray in Matthew 6. Get into your closet, shut the door, make sure there's no stimuli and say, God, it's just you and me. I'm getting low before you. If you want to go deep in the presence of God in prayer, you bring God higher in exaltation and you get alone in your secret place. This was the pattern of Daniel, who knew God more deeply than most of us, who prayed three times each day, where? In the upper chamber of his house, apart from everyone else. And finally, the E, exalt God by bragging on him. That's what it means to praise. That's what it means to exalt. It means to brag on God. You bring fame to God. You brag on his character and his perfect actions in your life, and what you're seeing in other people, what God's doing in other people. So far, here's what we've learned. Let me do a quick review. you got to look up. That's principle number one of 4D praying. And when you look up, you're not looking up to yourself. You're looking up to God. You're exalting God's acts. You're, you're exalting God's attributes. And the first one that the Levites gave to the Israelites when they were standing on the stairs, leading them in prayer, was... Look at your faithful God. Look at how faithful God is in your life. He is the Jehovah. He's the Yahweh. But secondly, look at the power of your God. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. How many of you own a Mazda? Anybody own a Mazda? Okay, one. Anybody else? Two, couple, three, three. It might interest you to know that the Japanese automaker that owns that line borrowed the name Mazda from from the god of Zoroastrianism named Ahura Mazda, god of light and wisdom. Did you know you're driving around in an idol? (laughs) In Loria's case, it's a very fast idol. One of which I would happily take if you donated it to ministry. Listen, why did I bring that out? In Nehemiah's day, remember he served Artaxerxes, king of Persia. You know who the god of creation was in Persia? Ahura Mazda. 
And he created another being who was very powerful, Anger Manu, who brought forth evil and ignorance, corrupting creation. But Ahira Mazda, as the Persians believed, in his wisdom made a way for creation to be restored to its original pure state. It's their version corrupted of the creation story. We serve the God who created all there is. You know, I recently read this explanation for the creation of the universe. Listen to this. Within the first 100 seconds of the Big big Bang, all of the building blocks for all of the matter in the universe today were formed. Well, I don't really have a problem with a Big Bang, big bang as long as God's the one bringing it about. But it goes on. Scientists do not know how the moon was created, but the generally accepted theory suggests that a large Mars-sized object hit the Earth, causing the moon to splinter off. That's the prevailing theory of where the moon came from. We get to exalt the God who created all as a Christian. And look what they say. The Jews exalted this God who, quote, made the heaven the heaven of heavens. You see, they understood heaven. They understood there were three heavens. And you need to know this because sometimes it's one or another of the heavens being mentioned in the Bible. They understood this blue, brilliant sky that you were going to enjoy today as being the first heaven. And then they understood the brilliant night sky with all the stars and all the the lights being the second heaven. And then they understood the place where God's throne was, where he ruled the universe and the angels ministered to him. That was the third heaven. So look what it says. Who made the heaven, the heaven of heavens. It's referring to the greatest of the three, the place where God is ruling, where his throne is. And he made all their hosts which means either the stars in the night sky or, more accurately, probably the angels in God's presence who worship and serve God. Now you take all of the wonder of the universe, all of it, big and small, molecular and and, and huge, magnificent. You take all of that wonder of the universe and every bit of it reflects the glory of our Creator God. Now listen. You're down in your secret place, and you're praying, and you you are looking out the window, and you're seeing that brilliant sky and that sun streaming in through that window upon you. And all of a sudden, you go down deep in humility, and you begin to exalt the Creator God. God made that sun. God made all that there is. And all of a sudden, life starts to come into focus. These problems that I'm experiencing, are they too difficult for my Creator God? My loved one who is walking away from the Lord, is that too difficult for God who created all? Or this cancer, which we've got somebody in our church that was just diagnosed this past week with aggressive skin cancer. If you've heard a doctor tell you you've got cancer, you know the shock. And when he's telling me he's crying and he's saying, God has taken away my life. And when you begin to, as a pastor, move his heart and his mind back to the power of God, lower yourself in humility. And as a teeter-totter, raise God in exaltation. Nothing is too difficult for God, not even cancer. 
and you get that bill in your mailbox and you don't know how you're going to pay it, nothing is too difficult for God, who not only owns the cattle on a thousand hills, made the cattle in the thousand hills. See, this is how you exalt God. This is how you bring your heart to the depths of intimacy in God. You go down deep when you bring God high. The Levites have taken their people to do, to new depths of God in prayer. They've seen God's faithful Jehovah love. They've seen His creative power. Now they're going to see His incredible name-changing grace. God's amazing. I want to, I want to just take a minute to explain these two words that we don't often mention. But theologically, they're rich. Okay, let me just explain them. Our Creator God, when you start seeing the God of creation, listen, you're seeing the transcendent power of God. Transcendence means God is ever above and outside the the total experience that we can have. He's bigger than us. He's above us. We'll never become like God. Not in matchless power. There are communicable traits of God. We can speak, we can show grace, we can show mercy, but then there's what theologians call incommunicable traits. You'll never create anything. You've never created a thing, and I never have created anything either. Nobody has other than God. He is the creator. He alone creates. There's things we can share with God, there's things we can't, but it's the things we can't that make Him bigger than us, larger than us, ever outside of our experience. You will be in heaven more than 10,000 years for an eternity, and you still won't plumb the depths of God. You'll never come to the end of who God is. You will never see all and understand all of God's love. Never, even after billions and billions of years in eternity. That's how big God is. But he's not only transcendent, the Bible or the theologians use another word. He's imminent, not imminent, like the bomb's going off any second. He's imminent, meaning he is personal. He is with us. He is among us. This transcendent God that lives outside of time. He's not bound by a clock. He lives within time and moves on his schedule. And he teaches us to trust him on his schedule. This transcendent God is imminent. This big God is right in the midst of us. He's ever above us. He's infinitely greater than us. Yet he's always with us. He's dwelling among us. He's pouring his love into us. It's this balance. It's why I'm explaining this. It's this balance that is in the Lord's prayer. And here's what it says. Our father, that's imminent. That's, that's intimate. That's family, our Father, uh-oh, in heaven. He's above us. See, you can make the Father, God, an idol. If you didn't have a Father, you're, you're particularly prone to this. I, wanna, I want God to be my Father. That's all I think of God is He's my heavenly Daddy. And you climb into His lap and everything about God is Daddy. Well, where's the wrath of God against sin? Where's the justice of God? Where is the omnipotent um, and, and omniscient God? So you've got to hold God in balance. He is imminent among us. He's transcendent above us. Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Ever above us is your name. Apart from us is your name. It cannot be reduced to the common is your name. 
You know, in India, the word for father is Pitta. Except that they never call their father Pitta, even though that is the correct word. They always add the suffix ye, spelled J-E-E. It's they, they add ye because ye denotes respect and reverence. It's the closest parallel to us is down south where you might say, yes, sir, daddy. See, there's that tension. There's that balance. You can't worship the imminent God only. You worship God for who He is. He is imminent. He's transcendent. He is our Father. He's holy. He's the omnipotent creator God who created everything. Yet He is the God that has poured His grace upon us for no reason other than His own will. Isn't that comforting? I mean, friends, think about that. Isn't it? Comforting to know that you don't need to get your act together before God pours out His grace. You don't need to be born to a class of family before God says, I will save you. You don't need to have finally atoned for all of your mistakes in life before God's riches of mercy will come your way. God gives grace to whom God wills, Romans says. And His grace is never deserved, it's never earned, it's always freely given, it's always transformative. And it's the third attribute that the Levites lift up. Look at verse 7. You are the Lord, Yahweh, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. Listen, you know Abram, the word Abram? You know what that means? It means exalted father. How many children did Abram had have at this point? None. It's like every time somebody called him Abram, it was like a kick right in his gut. God takes him, chooses him, says, I'm going to bring from you a multitude of people, a nation that's going to be my people. I'm going to choose you and I'm going to change your name. And he changed it to Abraham. You know what Abraham means? means father of a multitude. He still didn't have any children when his name was changed. See, this is our name-changing God. Now listen, he changed Jacob's name to Israel, one who contended with God. That's the meaning. He changed Simon's name to Peter, which means rock, because he's going to be a pillar in the church. He changed Saul, that warmongering Christian persecuting, church-hating Pharisee. He changed Saul's name to Paul. You know what Paul's name means? It means small. Here's his arrogant Pharisee in training, and God changes his name to small. Because Paul, if you're going to be used by me, I've got to make you humble. I've got to diminish you in your own eyes so that you'll exalt me in your life. See, God changes names. Now listen, he's done it to you. He changes names and then he begins to exert his grace to change your character. You may have been called an addict at one point. You know what the world will tell you? Once an addict, always an addict. You know what the gospel will tell you? Once an addict set free by Christ, you're an overcomer. You are free. That's the gospel. 
You may have been called worthless, but God's grace can make you his child whom he loves. You may have been called a friend with the world, but his grace can give you a new, a new name, a friend of God. You can draw hope when you go down deep and you exalt the gracious God of Jesus Christ. You can draw hope from the truth that God changes names and he brings you into conformity with him. And by the way, friends, we're all going to get a new, new name according to Revelation. Those of us who are in Christ, to the one who conquers, I will give him a white stone. See, in ancient Rome, a white stone was awarded to a person on trial who was declared innocent. If you were declared guilty, you were given a black stone. If you competed in the races and you won, you were given a white stone and your name was put on it. White stones were powerful. They evoked incredible imagery to the one who conquers. I'm going to give him a white stone. You won the race. You're declared innocent by my blood with a new name written on it. That new name's got a new family name. You're no longer Tim Ackley. You're Tim, the son of God, because of Christ. You've got a new name written on that stone, and that name is your adopted name into the family of God that is unique to you and given to you for you to know and God to know. And it's that name and that stone that gives proof That God has saved you. That gives you admission to an eternity of riches in Christ. That gives you confirmation that because of God's grace, He's changed your name and He's brought you into a new life. That's the power of our name-changing God. No matter what your situation, God has the power and the grace to change your name and give you a new life that pleases Him. You could draw hope. Listen, you go down deep in God in prayer through prayer. And like a teeter-totter, begin to exalt Him looking up. And you begin to recall and to remember that He is the faithful one who never will leave you or forsake you. That holds you up with His righteous right hand. You're praying this. You're looking up and saying, God, you are the faithful one. You showed your faithfulness to me this week. Here's how you showed your faithfulness. And then you begin to remember His power that has been exerted on your behalf. And you declare to God. You brag to God. You praise God. You put a price tag on God that's greater than anything or anyone. And you begin to speak that to God. And all of a sudden, your faith begins to soar. Then you remember His grace. I did nothing. I did nothing to deserve what God has given me. That's the gracious God who's changing my name. I am not who I was. I am who He is making me to be. That is a promise from the faithful God who has the power to bring it out. That's how you pray. That's how you go deep with God in prayer. You go down deep and lift Him up and exalt his character, and his attributes. We're going to finish the rest of them next week. There are amazing attributes to come. I hope you're here. Let me pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness. Father, thank you for drawing us deeper. I pray that we will enjoy the journey in Jesus' name. Amen.